Hello and welcome to the 16th episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update Podcasts. I'm Anna Pritoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Presenting with me as usual is Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team. And today we also have Richard Mendoza, who is a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, I will talk about a couple of recent decisions relating to privilege. Maura will look at two interesting Court of Appeal decisions on good faith and force majeure, respectively. And finally, Richard will discuss the recent Supreme Court decision in the BTI and Sequana case, which clarifies when directors owe obligations to consider the interests of creditors. So, starting with privilege, my first case is Laurelly Financing and Credit Suisse, a Court of Appeal decision from November which held that the identity of those instructing lawyers on behalf of a corporate client are not generally protected by litigation privilege. The only exception is where the disclosure of the individual's identity would inhibit candid discussion with the lawyer and therefore affect the client's ability to prepare its case. For example, because it might tend to reveal something about the content of the communication or the strategy. And that's going to be very rare. The question of which individuals are instructing the lawyers for the purposes of litigation will not be particularly relevant in most cases, of course. This was an unusual situation as it was uh, potentially relevant to a limitation defence. But the decision is interesting in that the court rejected the idea that litigation privilege protects all information falling within a so-called zone of privacy around a party's preparation for litigation. That was too broad. Instead, the court emphasised that privilege attaches to communications rather than informational facts. Although the decision shouldn't affect the principle that information communicated to a lawyer for the purposes of litigation is privileged, in the sense that the lawyer cannot be made to disclose it or give evidence about it. The other case I want to mention is University of Dundee and Chakraborty, which is an employment appeal tribunal case. It's actually a Scottish case, but the tribunal said English and Scottish law were identical for these purposes. The claimant was a university employee who raised a grievance at work. The university appointed an independent member of academic staff to prepare a report. The report was prepared and the university's solicitors suggested some amendments to it. Those were made and the final report was then sent to the claimant. The question was whether the first version of the report was privileged. The university argued that it was on the basis that it evidenced the advice of the solicitors, essentially because if the university had to disclose the original version, then the claimant would be able to infer the advice the solicitors had given by uh, comparing the original and the final versions of the report. But the tribunal held that the report wasn't privileged. 
It rejected the notion that an original document, which wasn't privileged at the time of creation, could retrospectively become privileged because it has been the subject of legal advice and a revised version has been prepared so that a comparison might allow the content of the advice to be inferred. This shows that there are some limits to the well-established principle that a document will be privileged to the extent that it betrays the content or the trend of legal advice. Although that principle certainly does still apply where legal advice has been given and there is a subsequent communication which reports on or summarises that advice. That's all from me. I'll hand over now to Maura. Thanks, Hannah. So the first case I'm going to look at is recompound photonics about contractual duties of good faith. The High Court's decision in this case last year gave rise to some concerns among our corporate colleagues because the court held that a, a generally worded good faith clause in a shareholders agreement had the effect of entrenching the positions of two board members who were also minority shareholders so that the majority shareholders had engaged in unfairly prejudicial conduct by removing them from office. Now, the High Court followed previous first instance instance authority in finding that once a party is subject to a duty of good faith, it's bound by certain minimum standards, uh, including that it must be faithful to the party's agreed common purpose as derived from the agreement, which the trial judge paraphrased as fidelity to the bargain. And in this case, the judge considered that the party's uh, bargain included an intention that these two individuals were to hold a balance of power uh, and be central figures on the board of directors. But that was despite the fact that neither the company's articles nor the shareholders' agreement actually had an express term to that effect. Now, the Court of Appeal has allowed an appeal against that decision, uh, and its judgment provides, I think, welcome clarification as to how a contractual obligation to act in good faith should be interpreted. Now, in particular, it emphasizes that a, a good faith clause must be interpreted by close reference to the particular context in which it appears. And uh, importantly, authorities which interpret even very similar clauses can't just be applied to other situations. Um, significantly, the Court of Appeal rejected the idea that there's a set of minimum standards that will apply whenever there's a contractual obligation of good faith. Uh, the court did accept the very obvious point. It said that the, the core meaning of an obligation of good faith is an obligation to act honestly. Uh, but beyond that, it said everything depends on the, the particular context. So that doesn't mean that the content of a contractual obligation of good faith is necessarily very clear, uh, but I think the decision is helpful in rejecting the application of a very broad and rather vague uh, set of minimum standards that apply in every case, such as this, this duty of fidelity to the bargain, uh, which I think it might be argued is, is really just another way of implying terms into a contract without meeting uh, what we know are the strict tests that are established by the case law for implied terms under English law, uh, namely that a term should be necessary to give business efficacy or so obvious that it goes without saying. So I think that is helpful. Um, on a practical level, uh, parties should remember that agreeing to a good faith obligation does have risks uh, because it may well lead to arguments about precisely what the obligation entails. 
So if such a clause is agreed, its scope should be defined as clearly as possible within the agreement, ideally specifying particular actions that are or are not required to satisfy it if, if that's feasible in the particular circumstances. The other case I want to mention is mirror shipping, uh, in which a majority of the Court of Appeal held that a, a ship owner was not entitled to rely on a force majeure clause in a shipping contract where its charterer's parent company became subject to US sanctions. Uh, and of course, in, in the context of the war in Ukraine and previously the COVID pandemic, the question of when a party can claim force majeure has been uh, a particular focus for many commercial parties. Um, the force majeure clause in this case required that the force majeure event could not be overcome by reasonable endeavours on the part of the affected party. Uh, the question was what that obligation of reasonable endeavours entailed. The High Court held that in exercising reasonable endeavours, the, sh the shipowner was not obliged to accept anything other than straight contractual performance. So in particular, it could insist on payment in the contractual currency, which was dollars, even though payment in euros would have overcome the difficulties and would have achieved precisely the same result since it could be uh, readily converted and, and the charterer had agreed to meet any additional costs that would be borne. But the Court of Appeal disagreed with the High Court's decision and held that the clause did require the ship owner to accept payment in euros even though that was not straight contractual performance, um, because as the Court of Appeal said, it, it, it achieved precisely the same result. Now, as ever with force majeure, the decision turned on the particular wording of the clause as applied to the factual matrix. So you can't necessarily assume that a clause in a different contract in different circumstances would be interpreted in the same way. But it does mean, I think, that parties should think carefully before insisting on strict contractual performance if there's an obvious workaround that might overcome the impact of a, f a force majeure event. Uh, so that's it for me. I'll hand over to Richard for the, the final segment. Thanks, Maura. As Anna said, I'm going to look at the Supreme Court's decision in BTI and Sequana, which came out in October, and which has clarified the important, important question of when the directors of a company have a duty to consider the interests of creditors. As listeners will be aware, directors are required to act in the way that they consider, in good faith, would be most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole. This duty is set out in Section 172 of the Companies Act 2006, which codified the long-standing common law fiduciary duty to act in good faith in the best interests of the company. Section 172 states, however, that this duty has effect subject to any enactment or rule of law that requires directors in certain circumstances to consider or act in the interest of the company's creditors. And it has generally been recognised that in an insolvency scenario, the interests of creditors must be taken into account, although in fact even the existence of a creditor duty was challenged in Sequana. But even though the existence of a creditor duty has generally been assumed to arise at some point in the context of insolvency, what has been very unclear is precisely when that duty is figured, triggered. The background to the Sequana decision, very briefly, is that in May 2009, the directors of a UK-listed company, AWA, caused it to distribute a dividend of €135 million Euros to its only shareholder, Sequana. 
At that point, AWA was solvent, but it had a contingent liability on its books, and the value of that liability was highly uncertain. And therefore, there was a real risk that AWA might become insolvent at some point in the future. It later transpired that the liability was significantly greater than originally anticipated, and some 10 years after paying the dividend, AWA became insolvent. BTI, as a signee of AWA's claims, brought proceedings against AWA's AWA's directors on the basis that their decision to pay the dividend was a breach of their duty to consider the interests of the company's creditors. The claim failed at first instance and in the Court of Appeal, on the basis that the duty to creditors is not engaged simply because there is a real risk of insolvency. In the Court of Appeal's view, the duty was engaged only when directors know or should know that insolvency is probable. That couldn't be said to be the case at the time the dividend was paid. There was a real risk of insolvency, but it was not a probability. BTI appealed to the Supreme Court, which unanimously dismissed the appeal. It agreed with the Court of Appeal that although a duty to consider the interests of creditors does indeed exist, a real risk of insolvency is not sufficient. But it formulated the threshold for the duty in slightly different terms than the Court of Appeal. The majority held that the creditor duty is engaged where the directors know or should know that the company is insolvent or bordering on insolvency or that an insolvent liquidation or administration is probable. This differs from the test referred to, uh, preferred by David Richards uh, LJ, as he was then in the Court of Appeal, which allowed for the creditor duty to become engaged at an earlier point in time, namely, as I've just mentioned, where insolvency, as distinct from insolvent liquidation, was merely probable, meaning likely. The Supreme Court did not have to determine the content of the duty owed to creditors, since it was held not to have been engaged on the facts, but the justices gave some helpful obiter comments on the point. The upshot is that once the directors know or ought to know that the company is insolvent, or that it's bordering on insolvency, or where insolvent liquidation or administration is probable, the interests of creditors should be balanced against the interests of shareholders where they may conflict. The greater the likelihood of insolvent liquidation, the greater the weight that should be given to the interests of creditors as against those of the shareholders. So ultimately, it is a fact-sensitive balancing exercise, which will depend on the director's reasonable assessment as to how competing interests of the company's stakeholders should be managed. Indeed, understanding who, as between creditors and shareholders, risks the greatest damage if a proposed course of action does not succeed will be central to that exercise. The position changes, however, once the company is irretrievably insolvent such that it becomes inevitable that the company will enter a formal liquidation or administration process. At that point, the creditors become effectively the only economic stakeholders in the company, having acquired a statutory priority as regards any distributions arising from that process. Should that eventuality transpire, the creditors' interests become paramount. This is on the basis that the shareholders no longer have any valuable interest in the company. The Supreme Court's decision is generally seen as comforting to directors in that it recognises the inherent risks taken by creditors and has not sought to protect them beyond existing creditor protections by extending directors' duties to consider their interests to an earlier stage where there is only a risk of insolvency, as BTI had argued should be the case. But directors are still left with difficult judgment calls, 
in having to assess where on the sliding scale of insolvency a company is positioned at any given time, so as to determine where the balance of competing interests between the company's various shareholders and creditors should lie. Thank you, Richard and Maura, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. As usual, we'll be back with another update in a couple of months.